Welcome to episode 434 with my guest, Rye Dune. Today's episode is sponsored by Gary John Bishop's highly anticipated new book, Stop Doing That Shit and Self-Sabotage and Demand Your Life Back. It's available now. Stop Doing That Shit is a no-holds-barred guide to breaking through your self-defeating cycles and finally getting what you want out of life. Stop Doing That Shit is on sale now in hardcover, ebook, and audio read by Gary John Bishop himself. Visit GaryJohnBishop.com to learn more. I am Paul Gilmartins of the Mental Illness Happy Hour, a place for honesty about all the battles in our heads, from medically diagnosed conditions, past traumas, and sexual dysfunction, to everyday compulsive negative thinking. This show's not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. I'm a jackass. I am a buffoon. But I do have a lot of experience in being a douche and a depressed one (laughs) and engaging in addictive behavior. So maybe I can chime in here and there. Uh, This show's not meant to be a substitute for uh, professional mental counseling, as I said. Uh, I'm not a doctor, not a therapist. I am. What am I? Well, now I'm a podcaster, but I used to be a TV host and uh, stand-up comedian. And I still perform every once in a while, but enough about that. Let's get to some surveys. Uh, This is from the What Has Helped You survey. This was filled out by a woman who calls herself Anxiety Queen, and her issue is anxiety. And uh, what has helped you deal with it? Uh, When I feel that monster anxiety creep up, I put on cheesy 70s music, and it helps me. That's awesome. There is something about silly music that, uh, or a silly silly video that uh, really kind of really kind of helps uh, or watching dogs be silly which I have been doing a lot of I don't know if I shared with you last week I know you guys know that uh, the regular listeners know that I adopted a uh, stray named Gracie and uh, my friend who found Gracie also found her with uh, a dog named Ron that sounds like it should be a book a dog named Ron. Uh, but he found Ron and Gracie. They were uh, just a couple of strays traveling together. And uh, this friend has been staying with me for a little while. He's going through a breakup. And uh, so Ron, he's tr- still trying to find a home for Ron. And I'm not ready to have two dogs yet. So I can't, I'm not ready to, to take a a dog like Ron on. Well, let me just give you a list of some of the shit Ron has torn through in the week that he's been uh, staying here. Two yoga mats, um, a, a couple of packages of uh, electrical outlets, um, various shit out of the recycling bin. Uh, my favorite was a plastic tub that still smelled of peanut butter and Boy, did he he have at that. In fact, he cleared his his whole schedule that day. I heard him say uh, to his secretary, Carol, clear my schedule. Uh, I have got an appointment with a plastic tub that still smells a little bit like peanut butter. And he finished his work that day. He he put in overtime. He's been digging holes in the backyard. Uh, He will take Taylor's clothes and... Just spread them out in the backyard. Every morning, Taylor wakes up and, oh, what is it? What am I missing? Socks, pair of jeans, underwear, sweatshirt, just delivered around the yard by Ron. 
he is such a sweet dog. He just, he, there's, there's no like malice in him. When you tell him no, he'll, he'll get low and, and roll onto his back. So it's not like he's defiant. He's just, the two of them remind me, if you've ever seen the movie Dumb and Dumber, there's the scene where, uh, Jeff Daniels and Jim Carrey dress up in tuxedos. And they come to this fancy event and they, they also have uh, top hats and canes. And of course, because they're a couple of idiots, they are enjoying beating each other with the canes and they just are running around, tumbling over each other. And, and that is, that, that's like what Ron and Gracie have been doing for seven straight days, at least seven straight days. And uh, the floors of my house are wood. So they're always, sliding past where they're trying to turn, bumping into shit, but they just love each other. And it, I'm feeling guilty that I'm not going to adopt Ron, but I mean, it's ridiculous. I'm being codependent with a fucking dog. I want to save him, but I have to trust that he'll find a, he'll find a good home. If not, we'll put him down. I'm kidding, of course, about that. Um, and I know there's other shit that, but my my whole house now is just covered in a film of dirt. <laughs> the two of them just roll. There's a lot of dirt in the backyard, and they just roll around in the dirt and then come. I have a little doggy door, and they must go through that thing fifty times a day, just full speed. Oh my God! I got to get to the bay window. I forgot I'm on watch to make sure there aren't any toddlers walking down the street endangering my owner. Continuing. Uh, Anxiety Queen writes, um, what have people said or done that has helped you? Just hugging me and letting me know that I'm okay. It's, it's amazing how helpful such a simple act can be when, when somebody is somebody's hurting just the act of just giving them a hug and not a patronizing pat you on the back but it's just a good i'm here kind of hug this is a shame and secrets survey filled out by a, a woman who calls herself one too many ducks she identifies as straight. She's in her 30s, was raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment. She's never been sexually abused, but she has been emotionally abused. She writes, codependent mom and alcoholic detached dad. Mom made us three girls behave, and we often felt like we had to read her mind. She didn't beat us, but a lot of passive-aggressive neediness. Dad was physically there, but didn't interact much. His dad committed suicide from PTSD when he was 10, and it was a relief to him because he was abused physically. Any positive experiences with people who abused you? I love my mom for being strong and trying because my dad never did. I love my dad for being a sweet grandpa. That's always interesting to me when a parent comes out of their shell or you see their nice side when they're a grandparent. And I always wonder, is it because the pressure is off and their ego isn't attached to what their grandkid is like? Um, or is it that they have kind of learned from their past and now see that they weren't really there for their kids. Or maybe it's a combination of the both. The both? The two? Both? Uh, 
Darkest thoughts. I am so tired that I often wish I would get in a serious car wreck so I would get some rest and never have to work or be responsible again. I wonder if there's a way that you could get some rest and take a break from a couple of responsibilities just for a brief time to recharge your battery. I'm not saying like, you know, ditch your, I don't know if she has kids or not, but I know sometimes we get into such black and white thinking that we think, well, I got to quit my job uh, and uh, buy a van and just live on beaches because that's the only way I'm going to be able to relax when maybe you just need another week of vacation or to talk to your boss and say, I'm feeling stressed out and overworked and uh, like I'm in over my head. Darkest Secrets. My niece is close in age to me and we have had a threesome. I am sickened that alcohol has ruined my judgment. I live in fear and shame that someone could find out in my family. We both act like it's no big deal and pretend it didn't happen. It's the worst thing I have ever done. Uh, sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. I am so numb. I don't fantasize. I have sex with my boyfriend for him. I don't orgasm. I feel like the sooner the better so I can roll over and sleep. I feel pathetic and dirty. You are not pathetic and you are not dirty. And people who experience numbness around sex, um, it's, it's possible. Uh, you know, one of two things pop, pop into my head that you have not processed some type of trauma and that your coping mechanism, your, your brain's way of protecting you from that trauma is to compartmentalize it and be numb. Um, or you're asexual, but either way, you know, my, my, it's so complicated because I think it's reasonable that a partner has an expectation of, uh, some type of sexual connection, uh, unless stated otherwise in the beginning of the relationship. But you also need to take care of your needs and, uh, I hate this word, honor, but honor those feelings inside you that you don't want to have sex and that you're having to check out mentally during it. That's not very loving to yourself. You know, you may be loving your boyfriend and doing that, but I think at the very least, maybe try couples counseling with him or start a conversation with, with him because he probably has no idea that these things are going on inside you. But I'm sure he feels your distance. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? To my sister that was murdered by her ex-boyfriend, why didn't you tell me that things were bad? You were my best friend. I would have given anything to save you or hold your hand in those last moments. Wow, that is so deep. I'm so sorry for your loss if you're listening. What, if anything, do you wish for? I wish uh, I could let go of my past and move forward. I don't know if we can ever completely let go of our past, but I, I do know that we can process it and ease the intensity that it has over our central nervous system and our patterns of thinking and behavior. Have you shared these things with others? I have to people in AAA. I can admit anything to a stranger because I don't have to live in that space. How do you feel after writing these things down? I'm crying. It feels like nothing good matters with the scars I've had in my life. 
Is there anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? There must be something to the saying that a problem shared is a problem cut in half. I've never heard that phrase, but I like it. Um, Any comments to make the podcast better? I watched dinner in a movie and found you somehow again. I hope to see the world in a different light and you have given me a spark. Well, that means a lot to me. And I just want to encourage you to process those those things that that you've experienced and that you're still battling with because you deserve you deserve to feel compassion and connection and that can be really healing. I don't know anybody that has been able to heal trauma in isolation. I just don't. But sending you sending you some love. Today's episode is sponsored by Veradesk. It's the world's leading standing desk solution, helping professionals maintain a healthy, active lifestyle in the office or at home. Veradesk converts any desk into a standing desk and is designed with durable, best-in-class materials that fit in any environment or workspace. With Veradesk, you can go easily from sitting to standing, increasing your productivity, focus, and collaboration. Veradesk comes with, sounded like I, that, that, that inhale sounded like I've had it with Veradesk. I've had it with their machinations. Veradesk comes with a 30 day risk free guarantee and there's no assembly required. They also cover shipping both ways. So if you don't love it, they'll pick it up. Veradesk is trusted by 98% of Fortune 500 companies and has over 14,000 five star reviews from professionals all over the world. Stay focused on what matters with Veradesk. To learn more about Veradesk Standing Desk Solutions, visit veradesk.com slash work elevated. That's V-A-R-I-D-E-S-K dot com slash work elevated. Maximize your productivity at veradesk.com slash work elevated. And as always, I put links to uh, any of the uh, sponsor stuff under the show notes for this episode. Uh, today's episode is also sponsored by our longtime sponsor, uh, and I'm so grateful for them, BetterHelp.com. If you've never tried online counseling, I really recommend giving it a shot, especially if you live in the boonies. It's uh, it's a it's a great thing. I don't live in the boonies, and I still love it. I love just being able to open my laptop every week and uh, talk to my therapist for 45 minutes or an hour without having to get in the car. And uh, it feels every bit as effective to me as in-person therapy. So uh, if you want to check it out, go to betterhelp.com slash mental. Make sure you include this slash mental so they know you come from the podcast and uh, hopefully they continue to um, advertise with us. Uh, And then just fill out a questionnaire. They'll match you with a betterhelp.com counselor if they can find one that they feel is a good match for you. Uh, then you can experience a free week of counseling to see if online counseling is right for you and you need to be over 18. And one more survey before we get to the, uh, the interview with Rye. This is an awfulsome moment filled up by a woman who calls herself Dash. She writes, as a child, I was jealous of the boys. All of the male children I grew up with got to do things that I couldn't. In the hot southern summer, They could run around shirtless while I was told to cover up. Adults asked them about their favorite sports while they asked me about my favorite dolls. Anything that I deemed, quote, fun 
was categorized by my mother as, quote, unladylike. This has always been a source of tension between us. As an adult, my understanding of what it means to be a woman has changed, and it still differs from my mother's significantly. I spend a lot of time doing the things that I deem fun, regardless of how unladylike they may seem. This continues to disappoint my mother, who sees my lack of interest in stereotypically feminine pursuits as the reason for my tragic 30-something single status. She's particularly bothered by my lack of interest in makeup and fashion. While I was a student in high school, she and my father actually paid me to wear skirts and dresses. So concerned was she with my disinterest in feminine clothing. Even now, when I visit her, she has more than enough to say about my clothing, my body, and my makeup. That is a form of of abuse, by the way. That is toxicity at its finest. Just because there isn't, you know, yelling and throwing shit or hitting, that that that's still, that is emotional abuse. Talk about not seeing your child for who they are and just seeing them as, as an extension of your own ego. And sadly, that is so common. Anyway, continuing. Not long ago, she, a devout Catholic, and I were out walking. There was a statue of the Virgin Mary up ahead. My mother was using it as a landmark to give me directions. She said something like, walk ahead and turn left at the statue of the dude. What dude, I asked. Then it dawned on me, do you mean the statue of Mary? That statue up ahead is a Mary statue. Hmm, so it is, she replied. She then thought about it for a moment and added about Mary, mother of God. She should have worn more feminine clothing. Nobody's Nobody's cool and everyone's scared. scared. And And we're just all in this together. There was no joy. Overeating. Apathy doesn't leave any marks. Numbing out. Physically. I wish that I was a girl. Panic attacks were so violent. Rudderless. They were mistaken for seizures. Shot coke in my neck. The TV was talking to me. Romantically, I am becoming the woman that I feared. He said, there's going to be a second hunger strike. Nothing's real. And I'm going to die. Sometimes I just go, hey, I can't deal. Just beyond broken. I want out. You have to, like, fantasize about the person I'm with. I'm gonna stop it. Fucking someone else. It's okay to be different. That I don't want to die is a miracle. To be weird. I'm so happy to be here. I'm gonna help you one day. People are gonna love you for that. It takes a lot of work to heal. It's hard being a weird kid. Sometimes you don't realize how fucked up something was until you feel the opposite of it. You will just never see what you're not looking for. I didn't know how to break up with him, so I just transferred schools. (laughs) (laughs) I'm here with comedian Rye Dune. Uh, who I don't know that well. We have a mutual friend, uh, your buddy Punchy, who's in my uh, my support group. Yep. The laconic and chill Punchy. Yeah. Wait, wait what does laconic mean? Uh, kind of laid back of a man of few words. He is. And nothing bothers him. Yeah. And I'm like, I think that's what laconic means. That's okay. what I get for trying to sound smarter than I am. <laughs> He's very uh, laconic. Sounds yes. like a drink or something for like yeah, gin and laconic problems. i'll have a gin and laconic yeah <laughs> sounds delicious uh i met rye doing his podcast uh what was it about a week ago something yeah, like that about a week week and a half maybe yeah but when uh punchy told me that you listened to this podcast yep um i was like well let's let's meet and uh, let's talk about having you on this podcast. And so here you are, and yeah. you battled depression. Is uh, substance abuse a thing? I think you were saying that you were to, are taking a little hiatus from the booze for a bit. Yes, I did. Uh, substance abuse is a thing. I 
totally struggle with moderation. <clears throat> Once I get buzzed, I just want more. And I'm a happy drunk. It's a social drunk guy. Right. Um, but I can drink until I'm dead. Like I never throw up. I'll black out instead. Mm-hmm. And that's where the, that, that's not fun. Just waking up being like, uh, oh, I think it sounds like a blast. <laughs> I think you're being really judgmental. No, it's, uh, that sounds problematic, man. And, yeah. uh, I, uh, it's probably sounds obvious, but I, I wonder if that's your way of medicating the depression or does the depression from the drinking or uh, b- I, a big cycle, a big cycle. Yeah. Um, I realize that <clears throat> when I do, when I am drunk, it eases my anxiety so much. Mm-hmm. that I'm like, ah, now I'm the real me. Right. And that's like a, kind of a scary thought to think like, oh, when I'm drunk, that's the real me. That, so I thought that recently. I was like, oh, shit, I think I might have a fucking problem here. <laughs> what, what I have discovered with drinking and sobriety and depression and, you know, who's the real me is that we can find a way to relax without drugs and alcohol and become the authentic yeah. us. It's not easy. Right. But, um, so I get it when you talk about most, and I'm not saying you're an alcoholic, but most alcoholics I know, we all talk about that moment when we first felt the buzz and we felt like we had arrived. We felt yeah. like, oh, this must be how other people feel. This is why they laugh and smile and yeah. have fun. That's funny. I have a distinct moment at a party in high school, just got like a little bit buzzed. <clears throat> And I was like, wow, this is great. And like people were laughing. I was like, see, everyone's happy because we're all drinking. It's like a bouncy house for <laughs> yeah. for adults. I felt like so peaceful. And I was like, hey, I'm not like scared. I'm not thinking like everyone's watching me right now. Right. I, I can be very egocentric. My anxiety is, is that way, as I'm sure a lot of people's is. Like the other day, I almost didn't go to Starbucks. I was going to go to Starbucks to write some comedy. And I turned around because I just started thinking like, what am I going to? I honestly had a thought like, what am I going to go type at Starbucks? <laughs> Who am I? Right. All full of myself. Yeah, right. And I was like, the baristas know me. They're just going to be like, oh, he's writing here. Was, I just started thinking these weird but thoughts. Th- like, this, Who? That's the most more normal thing, especially in Los Angeles. I know. I know. Why, why did you think that that was... Uh, I don't know. ...would I, draw somebody's criticism? I don't know. But then I, I turned around, and then I was like, I stopped. <laughs> and then I went, went to Starbucks and wrote, so I did it. But I was just like, I can't believe... I'm thinking this way, right? Thinking like, what am I gonna do? Go fucking write at Starbucks? It's like we, that, yeah, that's almost what it's there for in L.A. Right? <laughs> but it was weird. Take um, advantage of their Wi-Fi, poor Starbucks. Yeah. So uh, what I did was uh, just took my bottle of vodka and I got drunk at Starbucks and uh, everything was fine. I was the real me. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Although people drink at Starbucks quite a bit. Oh, I'm sure. <laughs> and on the sidewalk outside of Starbucks. Yes. Yeah, that's mostly what I'm talking about. Is it just me or does the um, homeless population seem to be not only growing but uh, just becoming more agitated here in Los yeah. Angeles? Yeah, I, I would say so. Yeah. Uh, my neighborhood, I'm noticing just over the, the past five years, more and more homeless people. Um and I was just, just downtown, downtown LA. I had to park at a gig near Skid Row. And I ended up kind of like in Skid Row as the sun was going down. It was, uh, it's an the, intense place. The change from when it was daylight to getting dark, yeah. I could feel it getting scary. And even one dude like was on a bike, he rode by me. He was like, this is Skid Row. <laughs> and that's how he realized it was Skid Row. I was like, oh shit. Yeah. Um, 
But wait, what were we talking about? Homeless people. Homeless people. Uh, but uh, talk about uh, Starbucks. And so you overcame uh, the critical voice in your head that was like, why Why are you going to Starbucks? What uh, Depression, anxiety, uh, moderation, uh, any other struggles? I'm mostly uh, just depressive person. Depressive person. More, more than anxious, too. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> and I realized recently uh, that over the past, since, since college, I have been drinking myself into depressive states. Mm-hmm. I didn't really realize, I knew alcohol was a depressant, but I didn't realize, even after a hangover, I would be very sad. And I'd be like, oh, this is just my normal depression, because I'm, right. I'm not physically hungover anymore. This is me. I'm just a sad person. But I was fucking drinking myself into that often. And I recently took over a month off from drinking, entered a depression without the booze. <laughs> so I know it can come organically just because that's the way I am. It doesn't need to be invited. That's the thing about depression. It's, it's, uh, <laughs> it's, you don't have to do anything sometimes. Yeah. To get it to come. So that was frustrating. I was like, I'm not drinking. I'm still getting, it's like depressed. an eager party guest. You don't have to send it an invitation. Yeah. It's going to show up. You know who? Yeah. It's going to pop in. And you know who's a pop-in guy? Punchy, our friend Adam. Yeah. He pops in. Don't give him your address. <laughs> he'll just he'll just pop, pop by? He probably wouldn't for you, but once you get, okay. get to a certain level, yeah, he's going to pop in. Yeah. And nothing bothers him. It doesn't... It, sorry, we're about to go on a tangent about our friend, but... Oh, no, that's all good. I just wanted that's to say, good. fuck you, Adam. <laughs> Call me first. All right, that's really all I want to say. Maybe it's time to set some boundaries with him. (laughs) Boundaries. I've been talking about that with my therapist. Yeah. I have issues with boundaries. Um, Like with my girlfriend, we're on break right now, actually. We broke up. But I would just always respond to her texts, even when she was texting me too much. And I told her, please, we got to stop texting. Mm -hmm. I would always respond to her. I don't know. I just didn't set a boundary of when to communicate with her and it put a big strain on us actually right and so you didn't follow it up with any consequences no yeah <laughs> no that's yeah there's no teeth in a boundary that that, that has no consequences that's mm-hmm. because yeah i find that when i try to set a boundary if i don't have anything to back it up um that person's generally not gonna listen or right. respect it and it may not be out of any kind of malice where they're like, well, fuck what he wants. It's more like, no, I know, I know what's best for him. So Mm -hmm. I'm just going to keep suggesting that, you know, he read this book right? or, you know, whatever it is. Yeah, totally. Yep. So I got to be better at boundaries and stuff. Um, but one big cause of my depression, which has been something I have been having to get, get through the past since it's been happening is, uh, my mom is, uh, has bipolar one. So I was in a household with... That's a big one. Yeah. Bipolar 1. Bipolar 1. Yep. Yeah. She's not bipolar 2. <laughs> she's not electric boogaloo. Yeah. She's bipolar 1. She's the real deal. Yeah. Uh, so that accompanied emotional abuse and just confusing times. Like, I grew up in a, a pr- kind of upper middle class, small town near Cape Cod, mm-hmm. and I'd never heard of bipolar before. Uh, our town was so small and everyone knew each other. I had to keep everything a secret from everybody would have to be like, Oh, my mom uh, had like a minor heart attack. Everything's fine. But she was actually in a mental hospital, stuff like that. Oh, wow. What, what age did that start? Um, she started 
she was in and out of hospitals. How old was she? How old are you oh, okay. when it came on your radar that mom has mental struggles? It would pop up here and there when I was a little kid. Mm-hmm. Remember there was one day, I think it was like six or seven. My mom was just, she would have rage. I would never see her being like crazy manic. Mm-hmm. She, she, she would be manic, but mostly what I saw was depression and rage. Yeah. So she was just like screaming at my dad one day. I just remember remember thinking like this is not normal and i'm scared right. so everyone's crying i know i know sometimes with mania there can be irritability along with the euphoria yeah and um i i wonder if that was separate from the man mania irritability uh with mm. her and it was just something else but um regardless we don't, don't need to pathologize it i'm just kind of thinking out loud here yeah that makes sense um Give me some snapshots from uh, childhood. <clears throat> give me give me some stories. Um, before I do, I will say that my mom is a success story. She's doing she's doing a lot better, and she's okay. living a, a good life. So that's good. So that that's nice. makes me feel more comfortable talking right. about this. Yeah. <laughs> if I was just like my mom's a bitch, fuck her. Let's right. let's tear her down. But no, my mom is awesome, and I love you, mom. She's not listening though, <laughs> which is good. Anyway, some snapshots. Well, I had a great childhood. My mom was healthy for most of my childhood. Uh, But she was obsessive with my school, my education. And I have ADD, ADHD. Um, Just her being so intense about school. There was one time in fifth grade, I deleted a book report by mistake. I just didn't save it correctly. Mm -hmm. She flipped out, screaming. uh, And I'm just like crying. And then I look back as an adult thinking like, what the fuck? It's a fifth grader's book report. It's like not a big deal. Right. So that was part of a rage, maybe irritability. Other times got darker. Um, Before you go to the other ones, I just want to talk about that one for, for a second. What do you think it was about that that upset her so much? Was she a, we got a good, good grades so you can have a good job? So you can be successful or what are the neighbors? Was she overly concerned with what the neighbors kind of thought or what? I think she internalized my struggles with school and like really it was almost like she was she it was almost like she was the one who deleted the book report or like she also had a test to study weeks in advance for for hours a night. So she had difficulty seeing you individuate from her uh, yeah she sees you as an extension of her yes yeah that's that's a, a load on a kid that <laughs> is a load emotionally on a kid yeah it was intense and it made me hate school and i also she never told me you're stupid but i concluded that i was stupid because i was going in to see like uh add doctors and stuff I was taking adderall <clears throat> which i did it help yeah but i it flattened my personality so much that I just uh, would lie and just say I took it. Uh, and then, fun part of that, my mom started taking my Adderall. Mm-hmm. She got addicted to it, heavily addicted. And that's when her rage really came out. This is when I was in high school. And that's where she, that's when she said mo- her most hurtful things, just like screaming to me, like, you're a big failure in life. Your father and I fight because of you. It's like you, it's just, I don't know, just saying. What'd that feel like? Made me feel dead just like you just shut down yeah i did i remember it was on her way to see my psychiatrist Uh, in retrospect she was probably jonesing for adderall yeah maybe withdrawing 
and yeah, it was just a bad car ride. I wanted to uh, jump out of the car, which fun fact, my mom did that once during during one of her, uh, I don't know if it was manic, just one of her Mm -hmm. breakdowns, jumped out of a moving car. Sedan, luxury coupe, pickup truck, (laughs) Mini Cooper. I'm going to guess her friend had a caravan. Yeah. Minivan. That's an ugly car to do such a dramatic move from. Right. It's yeah. not that badass. It's no, you don't look tough coming out of a minivan. <laughs> no. no. Uh, so yeah, she got her that Adderall addiction, which I didn't know about until recently. I talked do you know to her about how much she was taking. No, the, do you, I don't. Yeah. I, I should have asked that. I can still ask her. Um, another snapshot. This haunts me as if it is an actual snapshot. Uh, my mom attempted suicide a few times, one of which I knew about because I walked in on her uh, overdosing on her medication. She like swallowed all her pills. So I, f- I think I was probably 14 or 15. And at that period of my life, I was coming, coming home from school, trying to pre- pre- prepare myself. Was like my mom might have killed herself today. Let's go see if she's around still. Wow. <laughs> oh, yeah, man. it's crazy. I was never like this really, really could happen. I just, it's hard to explain. I just know it. It, it actually could happen, if but it, it wasn't like every day I was like, here we go. Right. It, it was just like, this is a reality that like anything could happen in your household. Yeah. And so it wasn't ridiculous to think of something and yeah. go, I wouldn't be surprised. I knew she was so unhappy and so miserable. I was like, yeah, she might fucking kill herself. And so you walk in and <clears throat> walk in, see her on her bed. Um, she's like foaming at the mouth. Kind of, it was more like chalk, mm-hmm. uh, just having trouble breathing. Another uncomfortable thing, which is just so uncomfortable still to this day. She, uh, defecated her pants. She just lost control of her bowels. Right. Makes sense. <clears throat> um, and I was just like, Mom, what, what did you do? She was just like moaning. And I could tell that she probably took pills. Right. The first thing I did, which I feel a little bit ashamed about, was I called my dad Why? instead of an ambulance. I was just freaking out. You were so, a high school kid. Yeah, I guess so. Oh, I thought you said, why did you call my dad? No. Why are you, <laughs> why are you shaming yourself? <laughs> You're That's a high so school funny. kid, man. Yeah, yeah, I know. This is heartbreaking shit, man. No wonder you're depressed. <laughs> dude, I want to give you a hug, man. Oh, thanks, dude. <laughs> um, I called my dad. just like, Mom, mom's overdosing or something. I forget what I said. I explained what was going on. He was like, all right, call, call an ambulance. So I just called an ambulance. They came. And the one of the EMTs called called it in. She was in a wheelchair. It was like, we got a possible suicide attempt. When he said that, my sister had come home from work. My sister started bawling, crying. When he said, when I heard like an official EMT call in, yeah, possible suicide attempt, I was like, holy shit, this is real. What, what do you remember thinking or feeling in that moment? I entered... I was actually really impressed with how I handled it. I entered a state of just like, I need to be in control. I need to be calm. Mm -hmm. I don't know how I did it. I think probably as a defense mechanism, I kind of like shut down, Mm -hmm. but I was very calm. Even like my mom, I saw my mom in the wheelchair. She even like laughed 
because I think she had a moment thinking like this is so ridiculous so like I laughed <laughs> as my mom's going in the ambulance and then immediately afterwards I um, started setting up a tent because I was going camping that weekend I just immediately made myself busy which I don't know I, I don't know if that's the healthiest thing to do but uh, a landscaper was landscaping my, my place and I worked with him uh, a few summers later this guy is just not a very smart dude mm -hmm. socially not very skilled. So he walks up to me. He saw my mom getting the ambulance. He was like, Oh, your mom's really fucked up. Huh? <laughs> wow. And in that moment I improvised, I was like, Oh yeah, she's uh, low on insulin. <laughs> he, was like, oh, he was just like, Oh, okay. So I was like, Hey, that's a good, good improv right there. I don't know if it yeah. scientifically makes any sense, but it's always mind boggling to people that have no sense of what is appropriate or inappropriate yeah. to say when there's like a tragedy or something really painful. It made me so angry. I didn't show him my anger, but I was just like that fucking asshole. <laughs> yeah. I was, I was, uh, there was a, a comic that had tried to kill himself and he had swallowed, uh, Drano hmm. and this manager we were all, we were at, I don't know, some comedy festival and we were all riding in like a van on the way to the, to the theater. And this manager in front of like everybody said, Oh yeah, didn't you like try to kill yourself or something? Oh my God. And I just remember thinking like, I know this other comedian and I've never brought it up. Right. With him because I don't, at that point, I didn't know what to say. Nowadays I might, you uh -huh. know, ask how he's doing without, yeah saying something like that but yeah i i just uh it's bizarre bizarre but anyway <laughs> so back to back to um that that situation um i mean I, I was just trying to picture what it would be like and it just like the first word that came to my mind was numbness that it would just be so overwhelming it would almost feel like you're leaving your body yeah i think i was so calm immediately afterwards i had a little freak out when i found her but right. then i was so calm never didn't cry and then i went camping that weekend with a friend had laughed some of the hardest i've ever laughed mm -hmm. I, about unrelated unrelated stuff yeah it was i was almost scared of like how am i able to detach myself so much from this I probably saved you that ability to do that as a as a kid. I guess so, yeah. Did you when your sister broke down and cried, did you or have you ever when she breaks down and cries and you shut down, have you ever wished that you could react like her? Um, yeah. Maybe talk about that. Yeah, I for a while during those years that's when I started getting depressed and stuff. And also earlier with puberty, just it's my natural. It's what I do. I get depressed. <laughs> um, I would barely ever get angry. When I was in high school, I was just a flat, practically emotionless person. Nothing would really even really bother me. It was, it was strange. My mom would even ask when she was in a healthier state, ask me like, how come you never get mad? <laughs> it, it, it's strange. Um, I wonder if there's a relationship too between like your difficulty concentrating and your need to escape the pain of reality as a kid. You know, mm -hmm. I, I sometimes wonder if there, if uh, dissociating 
isn't sometimes misdiagnosed as, as ADD or ADHD. Um, I mean, I, I probably shouldn't even be talking about this because I'm, I'm not a mental health professional. I'm not a fucking doctor, but this is more like a when, waiting room that doesn't suck. <laughs> but <laughs> when thoughts pop into my head about the overlap on some things, I just feel like this, like I want to just throw those questions out out there hmm. um, because I do see a similarity between um, attention deficit and dissociating, not the kind of dissociating where, you know, it's like a personality disorder where you wake up and you're like, how did I get the, the, these green pants on and I'm right. suddenly in the Netherlands? Yeah. I don't know why I pronounce it Netherlands. <laughs> the Netherlands. Um does that make does that make sense? I think yeah, I think you know what you're saying. Um Yeah. I don't know. I still don't know how I was like I didn't try to like I'm choosing to right. dissociate. I don't know, it just happened. But then afterwards depression came in. Um and I just didn't enjoy life. I was recently depressed last week, went through depression, still coming out of it. I can see it in your eyes. Really? Yeah. And I, and I actually uh, was experiencing it when we recorded oh, really? your podcast, and I could see it in your eyes as well. I could see depression. And, really? And, um, well, I, let me – if it's in somebody's eyes, I recognize it. Yeah. Yes. Hmm, it's, there's a, there's like a, almost like a glassy kind of uh, – I don't know. It's, it, it's hard to describe, but hmm. it's, a, it's a look I'm very, very familiar with. Interesting. I feel like I'm not that good at it noticing visibly noticing depression my therapist told me he was like i can see you're depressed <laughs> i was like yeah. damn just by looking at me fuck <laughs> um but yeah i just just last week had the, the thoughts again i'm sad most of my life has been sad the rest of my life is going to be mostly sad everyone's sad life is sad and I know that the, I know that's the depression talking, but oh, I was like, yeah. no, I believe it. I fucking believe it. It right feels now. so real when you're in it. And how it, old are you? Tw- uh, 35, 35. <laughs> Almost said 25. Yeah. Um, I'll shave 10 years off if you don't mind. Okay. Let's, let's yeah. call you 25, 25 year old ride in. Anybody wants to fight us on this? Come at us with what you got. <laughs> come at me, bro. Um, so, when you're in a place like you are right now in the sadness, how do you, how do you, what are the ways that you cope? You're not drinking. I drank. You are seeing a therapist. I drank this weekend. Oh, you did? I mean, it wasn't like a, I need a drink. It was like, I'm going to have three beers tonight. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a buddy's bachelor party next week. So I think I'm making excuses. I'm going to drink there. I don't know. I was just like, let's just like practice. <laughs> but to cope with depression, a new thing in the past year after going to through therapy is I finally let myself be depressed and l- mostly let myself isolate and stay in bed all day if I feel like I have to. In the past, I I thought that was a bad thing to do. I thought it was detrimental to your mental health if you stayed in bed all day. That's what one doctor had told my mom. She was like, even if you're depressed, get up and go to work. So that was just what one doctor gave for mm-hmm. my mom specifically. But I took that. I was like, oh, that must be general psychology. 
So I would, a new thing of coping is letting myself be sad, staying inside. I'm a believer. I believe in, I'm a believer in that one, not denying whatever your reality yeah. is and meeting yourself where you are. Mm-hmm. Exercise, of course, helps. Mm-hmm. I hate going to the gym, but I, I do love being outside. So you do some exercises in your bed. <laughs> yeah. You do some roll-ups. <laughs> yeah. Push-ups are fucking tough because you just sink in. Yeah, 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 it is. It's a good workout. Yeah. Uh, the bed gets all sweaty, but hey, I'm, when I'm in a depressive state, my apartment is disgusting. So That's right. You're not going to do laundry anyway. Yeah. So who gives a shit? I love that depressed person smell in a bedroom. The the um and there is a smell to depression. That, you said that, it uh, yeah. one time on this podcast. I'm yes. a huge fan. By the way, everyone listening, I'm one of you. Hi, good, <laughs> good, good to be good to be sad with you. <laughs> um, yes, I've smelled it in my own clothes. I've yeah. smelled it on my own sheets. It's just uh, laundry that's overdue. Mm-hmm. You can smell that just a shirt that's been worn a couple too many days. Oh yeah, sheets that haven't been washed in three weeks. The sheets. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and also another thing I did to cope, uh, you, I listened to this podcast, so I'll go on walks, listen to this. Uh, when I was going through a heartache over a year ago, I listened specific as I was heartbroken. You uploaded the episode, uh, with Guy Wench. Oh, great episode. And I was like, holy shit. This is, th- he's, Paul is speaking to me <laughs> <laughs> and that helped so much. Um, I also bought a book. From one of your guests. Uh, Do you remember which one? Yeah. Uh, uh, shit. Dr. 21 Jimmy. Ways to a Happier Depression. Oh, uh, Seth Swirsky? Yes. Yeah. Is that his name? Yeah, right on. So I read that. That helped me lift up a little bit. There was one day where I went skiing. I love skiing. So I went, my therapist assigned this to me. She was like, go skiing. Where'd you go? I went to Big Bear. Awesome. F- fully depressed. Did it help? <laughs> it did, yeah. Yeah? It 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 was weird. I was so depressed that it wasn't make, really making me like happy. It did, but then I got emotional about how much I love skiing. Mm-hmm. So I started crying on the chairlift. <laughs> and it, yeah, it it's great. I, lo- I love the fear of skiing. I went off a big jump, and it, it felt like stand up doing stand up before a gig. You're nervous, right? And like this, I could get hurt out there. Right. It's just like approaching a jump. Like oh shit, mm-hmm. here we go. In midair, it's peaceful. Like if you're having a good set, like, all right, sweet, we're in it. Then afterwards, like my ego comes out. I don't express it outwardly, but in my head, I'm like, fuck yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like adrenaline, like, fuck yeah, I'm the fucking man. Because, Paul, very good skier. Level three expert, okay? Are you really? (laughs) Technically, at level three, but I'm joking about being cocky. But for real, I shred, dude. Yeah? I fucking shred. And you get air? I get air, dude. I can do big air 360s. It's sick. What? <laughs> yep. Oh, my God. One day it'll... I'm, I'm shocked I haven't broken a bone skiing. That's amazing that you haven't broken a bone yet. I hurt my uh, ankle. I went to uh, Mammoth this past winter. Hurt my ankle. Still hurts. So were you, were, I'm were, getting there. Were they getting a lot of snow when you were there? Holy shit. I wonder I think, if you were up there I, at the same time. I think you went skiing... At a similar time. Yeah. But god damn, I, I rented my friend's uh, motorhome, 30-foot RV, and I just went, I subletted my apartment to a friend, went to Mammoth for like a month. You drove the RV up there or you rented it up there? I drove it up. Yeah. Just me and my cat. Adam came for the first few days, our friend Punchy. Sweet. I, two blizzards. I was snowed in for like a, a total of three days. Totally snowed in. I went a little crazy. 
<laughs> I have experienced being on like an awesome mountain skiing and not being so depressed that I can't even feel it. I can't even enjoy it. Really? Like the invigoration of moving, you know, I can feel that, but not even getting the endorphins, hmm. you know, afterwards. Wow. It's, it's, it's frustrating. Wow. Yeah. That's the sh- annoying part of depression. You're just like, I just need to boost myself up a little bit. Lift me out of this. Right. When you're trying stuff and it doesn't work. Yeah. Frustrating. What are some of the fucked up things that help you when you're depressed? What do you mean? That, well, you know, for me, like uh, watching a, a dark documentary about mm-hmm. tragedy or playing civilization for eight hours. In my most recent depression last week, watching survival stories, specifically, I, I shouldn't be alive. Yes. So captivating. And I right. feel like it makes me like I'm rooting for this person to live. It's good to see someone wanting to live so bad. Mm-hmm. So I think it's like, all right, I can do this. Yeah. I, <laughs> I, I never occurred to me, but I went through an obsessive phase uh, in the late 90s, early 2000s, where I was devouring books about people uh, struggling to survive on mountaintops or on mm. ships and stuff like that. And it led to me eventually learning uh, how to mountain climb, but I didn't understand what it was about. And as you mentioned that now, I was like, I guess I wanted to see myself. And that's yeah. the closest I could approximate with somebody <laughs> battling physically what right. I was battling internally. Yeah. That makes sense. Just You've a... just solved the riddle. You're happy now. You can stop doing this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> You're welcome, dude. I'll, I'll take over. Uh, so... Binging, uh, I yeah. shouldn't. I shouldn't be alive. Yeah. What, what are some other things? Also, eating mm-hmm. candy with the lack of alcohol. I was craving candy like crazy. Oh yeah. And sometimes I allowed myself to do it, it but moderation with candy. I'll just buy way too much candy and eat it all, even if I'm not hungry. Here's here's something I've never heard somebody say out loud. I'm going to buy a moderate amount of candy. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> That is literally the first time those combinations of words have been said. Yeah, it's almost like a gate that opens and there's just a dam of water. Like, I'm going to buy candy. Like, if I decide I'm going to buy ice cream, yeah. I'm getting six pints of different flavors of ice cream. It's like me with drinking. Once I get buzzed, right. well, I might as well get drunk. Right, if you're going to do it. And if I'm drunk, might as well get some pizza late night. That's right. <laughs> and then the next day, I'm just like, fuck, I did it again. So how are you with... Shaming yourself. Bad. Yeah. I shame myself very easily. And even around your depression. Yes. And what you're quote unquote doing right or not doing right. Yes. With the candy and eating, I do consciously think I'm allowed to do some stress eating or whatever you might call it. Lay in bed. You know, I, I think of it as the flu. For I've, your soul and your brain, and why would you shame yourself if you had the the you know the flu for your body? Yeah, I know. I try to I try to do that. I'm good with that when it comes to sleeping. Mm-hmm. I've allowed my, your podcast has helped me do that because I've heard you talk about it. Sleeping until one, and yeah. it's like being it's okay. Yeah, if you're exhausted, fucking sleep. One thing that's frustrating is this: the reality that talking about depression is often awkward. Like I told my, I was on a, on my way to a gig in Long Beach uh, last week. 
my buddy was in the car. He was just like, have you been? And I, was, and I was just like, ah, actually currently depressed, but, and he was like, oh shit. And then it was awkward. Yeah. I was like, but if I said like, ah, I got a sore throat, mm-hmm. he'd be like, oh, a bummer. I hate sore throats. Yeah. <laughs> it's mental illness makes a lot of people uncomfortable. They don't know. And you know, it's like almost like a minor form of death that they just don't, if they haven't experienced it, they don't have any experience. They don't know what to say. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, I imagine it's very, very awkward. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> and that's why I, I'm a big fan of you. One reason. Remember when I, on my podcast, I said, you're a good role model. <laughs> and you were like, that I, makes me so uncomfortable. Did I say that? <laughs> yes. <laughs> but, uh, I am very flattered by the way. You're, yes. you're a real dude. You're not like I think of other male role models. There's mm-hmm. The Rock. Mm-hmm. I joked in the podcast that you're just like The Rock. People get me mixed up with him all the time. I know. I figured that. I'll hear Dwayne, <laughs> Dwayne, and I have to turn around. I'm not Dwayne. It's me, Paul Gilmartin. Yeah. Um, you're uh yeah you're a real dude like The Rock. He's huge. He's a hard worker. He he. He has talked about depression, but he's not relatable to me. Like, right. I don't see myself in him at all. Right. Like Tony also, Robbins. I look at Tony Robbins and I'm like, that guy might as well be from another planet. That and, get up and do it kind and, of shit. And I find that to be demotivating, if that's a word. Absolutely. It backfires on me. Yes. I don't. <laughs> and then there's Gary Vaynerchuk, who I know personally, and he's he's an entrepreneur who's, who's getting kind of into the motivational speaking mm-hmm. realm. <sighs> can't do it man he he makes me want to quit yeah <laughs> when he's preaching like work hard work your ass off every day it makes me want to do the opposite right <laughs> i'm like too hard not gonna do it you know what i would love to hear is a motivational speech give yourself unconditional love every day be gentle with yourself give something your best shot but it's okay yeah if it's you know not what you had hoped it would be and i think it that form of motivation, it's fine. It's just not for me. It doesn't work on me. I don't think he's a bad person. They're bad people for me. I like. think they're monsters. <laughs> um, fuck, there's something I was going to say. Gary V. Motivation. I forget. You were talking about what happened, the role model. Oh, that's right. Yes. Oh, um, here's what I wanted to say. Um, I have gotten, res- whenever I talk about depression on social media, I get a big response. And <clears throat> I find myself in a position to kind of be a role model. Mm-hmm. Um, you have a lot of followers on Twitter. You got like 100,000 followers, something like yeah, that? Yeah, I, I was a Vine guy. Mm-hmm. I had 3.8 million followers on Vine. You're not doing it anymore? Vine's gone. Well, Tw- then it would be hard. <laughs> <laughs> it's very hard to do these days. That was That caused major depression in me. I bet. Just all of a sudden, Twitter's like, hey, uh, you know, you're everything – the reason you're successful, uh, we're going to cancel it. <laughs> wow. But in the same sense, it's a blessing because it's like being on a hit TV show for three years and it gets canceled. Right. I was getting millions and millions of views for a solid three years. Um, and then it went away and I'm still coming back from it. Still trying to mentally come back from that. What are the thoughts and the feelings that associate with are associated with that? It's... I've, I self-doubt, I think. I sometimes think I'm not going to make it. 
I'm not funny enough. I'm just not going to make it. Failure. I'm going to be, I'm, I'm going to fail. I am failing. I already have failed. It's going to continue. <laughs> These are very uh, helpful thoughts. Yeah. Dude, I relate. Um, I relate to that feeling. And wh- I've recently got interested in, I'm l- looking into grad school, get my master's in psychology. Um, right now it's just an idea, but mm-hmm. I want to help people. Uh, when people say like, you're hilarious. I, I like that. That's what I'm going for. I'm trying to be funny usually, right. but the more meaningful messages is I'm sure you get a ton of just like, thank you for talking about this. You like, it's so refreshing to hear somebody like you talk about this. Just thank you. You've helped me a lot. Those messages mean they're just more important to me. Uh yeah, you know, having a sense of meaning and purpose in in your life is such an important thing. Uh I I just think it's it's genetically within us to want to find our meaning or our yeah. purpose. Um and very often, I know this sounds like a cliche, but our biggest stumbling blocks can be the very thing that leads us to find a meaning and a purpose mm-hmm. in our life. Um but going back to the you know the letdown after the uh, vine going away, um, you know I'm 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 going to fail. I'm never going to make it. Uh, you know what what does making it look like? Uh, great question. I was making it, and for me, it meant making good money. Mm-hmm. Uh, to put it shallow, uh, shallowly, if that's the word, uh, being praised. I was just getting like public praise like all day every day you're hilarious getting recognized a lot fame was a sign of success mm-hmm. um i was always very conscious like don't let this go to your head like be a like because i know like fame can like fuck people up and i would always say like this is going to go away i always considered ban- uh, vine to be like a boy band because <laughs> <laughs> us viners we had the boy band fans it was like teenage girls yeah. and i was like Boy bands last three to five years. I was like, all right, my Vine career is going to be three to five years. And I knew it. I called it. But even when it went away, it was still wasn't ready for it. I didn't think it would be deleted. Like the whole app would be gone. Right. Lost my manager. Lost my agent. It was just had a bad year after Vine went down. And did the drinking uh, pick up then? How did you cope with the feelings? Did you isolate? Did you drink? Or did you? Yeah. Isolate, drink. Uh, I just lived life with panic. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, I, f- I did feel a little bit liberated because in the comedy community, I was like, I no longer have, I'm no longer, I won't be known as like the Vine guy who also was trying stand up. Right. So it was kind of, I kind of like that. I felt more free to talk about stuff on stage. Had you not done stand up until the Vine thing took off? No, I started stand up three months before Vine came out. Okay. Started in Boston heard about vine from joe rogan's podcast um and within three months of doing stand-up i had a ton of followers and i was getting i was gaining fame and i was <laughs> i was a terrible comedian it was my first year of comedy sometimes college oh, kids, other comics love that <laughs> yeah yeah people <laughs> kind of hated me sometimes other people were cool but like i'd be at an open mic in boston tons of colleges some college kids walk in and like oh, holy shit it's right noon. And then I suck. <laughs> I didn't have a big stage of being anonymous. Uh, so that is a downfall. 
Um, but yeah, I think that concludes that thought. <laughs> I feel like my ADD is bad today. We are not a good match. Uh, <laughs> we are, we are two guys that are going to need help to get out of the woods. Cause dude, we got to start a podcast together. We, uh, <laughs> and, uh, and we got to go camping. And what were we talking about? Yeah. So ways that you cope, uh, ways that you got through that, that time. Still, still getting through. Still it. getting through it. Uh, therapy. I started therapy a little over a year ago. That's good. <clears throat> mm-hmm. Has it helped? Yes. Uh, not as much as I want. <laughs> yeah. Um, what else do I do? Uh, Have you ever considered seeing a psychiatrist? I see a psychiatrist. Okay. Uh, I'm also on. I take 20 milligrams of Paxil, uh, 20 milligrams of Buspar, uh, once a day. Yeah. Um. I, it's weird. And do, do you keep your shrink updated on how you're feeling? Yeah. Okay. Cause that's really, really important. That's something that I often did not do. I don't do it enough yeah. now that you say it, actually. I didn't realize, I kind of didn't realize that she was there for therapy. She could be used for therapy as well as drugs. They d- typically are not great talk therapists. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I always have a therapist and a psychiatrist, mm-hmm. uh, and I'm super fortunate that i can uh i'm able to do that yeah um but i would very i'm sure you will relate to this when you're depressed one of the biggest challenges is finding the words to express what it is that you're feeling yeah or how your week has been oh well there was a day that the sandwich tasted kind of good and then i thought that this is all a waste of time and eventually it's a black nothingness (laughs) how do you you know yeah. And then I was excited because The Sopranos was coming on. Uh, it's so hard to explain. I still have never been able to explain what my depression feels like. I hear people try to explain it on uh, through your surveys and stuff. Mm-hmm. Well, not that sounded almost condescending. I've heard people try on your silly little podcast. <laughs> I didn't take it that way. <laughs> it's it's a really difficult thing. It's like trying to describe fog to you know somebody that's. To an idiot. <laughs> Somebody that's stupid. Yes. Uh, I've heard people say like it's like a weight. I yes. I agree. Like even right now, I don't even know what words to, to say. Right. Uh, there was when my depression was the worst a little over a year ago. It hurt to stand up and be, be in my living room. Yeah. I was like trying to get out of bed. Uh, my eyes are, I'm like squinting my face, like mm-hmm. making a f- pain face. Yeah. Your s- skin almost kind of hurts just it, to move and be active almost feels like it. But it's so confusing because it doesn't actually hurt, right. but it does. <laughs> I think one of the closest ones for me to describe it is that the smallest activities feel like jumping into a cold pool. As I as I contemplate taking out the garbage, yeah, it's the same as there's a thirty degree pool, uh-huh. and you have to jump in it and <laughs> swim for a minute. I've never thought of it like that. That's what it feels like. Uh-huh. Like it's just I. It's so hard to psych myself up to do laundry. Yeah, to make a phone call. Oh God, I'm bad with that. Gives me a long a lot of anxiety. I'm bad with like texting people emails i let mm-hmm. pile up oh yeah that's fun but yeah um how high has your mail gotten before you should see how many texts i have right now 
I'm, yes. It doesn't bother me having a ton of texts. I have like 700 on, on open text right now. If I see a text and I don't have to open it to read the whole thing, I'll just leave it. <laughs> right now, I probably have 6,000 unopened emails. Wow. Yeah. I'm a popular guy, Paul, but also rude, so I will not respond to you. <laughs> but 5,000 of them are from a guy in uh, Ethiopia that has... yeah. A great deal for you. <laughs> yes, I respond to those. So yes. those are those are open. Those are Every, pressing. Anything important? I don't open. No, I get a lot of like bullshit mail. As I'm sure you do too, spam and stuff like that. What are some nice things you, you tell yourself, if any, when you're struggling? <sighs> hmm. Uh, I I guess maybe like it's okay to feel this way. But I never think like, hey, you're actually a good guy. It's like, you can do this. I'll just be like, all right, I'm depressed and that's okay. That's about as nice as I get. Right. But I never, it's never even dawned on me to like think like, hey, maybe I should think like, hey, uh, people like you, right? I never think that way. I just think life is sad. I'm going to be sad forever. <laughs> <laughs> and then suicidal ideation mm -hmm. as well. Sometimes it just feels good to think about it. It's it's nice. It's it's comforting to know that there's an exit. Just I hate to say that yeah. out loud, but it's the it's the truth. I don't recommend it to anybody, and I'm yeah. glad I never did it. But when things get really bad for me, um, it would be worse if I thought to myself, you know, there is no way out. Right. Yeah, it's good to know. So if all else fails, mm -hmm. kill yourself. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks for tuning in. <laughs> Uh, uh, but in, as I come out of this depression, I, not having the ideation anymore, I, I thought about killing myself to just like, see if it would still feel good. And it was the good feeling of it was gone. And I almost kind of like missed the therapeutic feeling of like, uh, picturing myself, killing myself. Isn't that weird? It's, it's therapeutic. No, dude, I get it. <laughs> I get it. But that feeling, I couldn't do it anymore recently. And I was, I was kind of like, ah, oh, man, but I was like, Hey, wait, no, this is good. This is good. <laughs> I had another question for you. Have you ever looked at yourself, probably not, as a warrior for what you have dealt with in your life and what you currently deal with? Every morning. No. Yeah. Um, kind of, actually, yeah. Yeah? I do. Talk about that. I feel like I'm kind of a badass for going through what I've gone through. You are, dude. But even as I just said that, I wanted to follow it up with like, but people have much bigger problems than me. But I don't know. I and they're myself. also warriors. Yeah. I do. Yeah. Like life is hard. Yeah. And to be a happy, nice person. It, yeah. You, that means you're a warrior. <laughs> so yeah, I do. I do consider myself kind of a badass. Yeah. Anybody can take their shit out on everybody else. But to battle these things and to try to be a decent human being. And uh, when my mom was in the mental hospital when I was in high school, I was, I'm really impressed. I was a badass in high school with the yeah. shit I was going through then. But I had a thought. I was in a, a band with Adam, Punchy. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you should just call this the Punchy episode. Um, and I thought like, hey, this sucks, but it's probably going to make me a better musician. It's like, I'm going to write some awesome lyrics one day. 
Uh, and now I talk about it in my comedy, but I was always impressed. Like, wow, I can't believe I'm seeing the value in this. And I do think people who have struggles makes you much more interesting, yeah. much more interesting person. And you can show up for other people in a way yeah. that somebody who's never experienced it couldn't. Exactly. But if we isolate, we never get to we never get to connect on that level. It's it's you know it's weird how even the most awful things have some nugget of potential yeah. positivity that's inside what I, them. That's what it's inspiring me about going and getting my masters because I because I think like I've been through. Some shit. Yeah. I know what it's like to be depressed and suicidal. I've succeeded. I've failed. I might have a good fucking effective voice here. And if I could be, I, I would like to be some little boy's role model. I want to be somebody's Jim Carrey. Jim Carrey's my God. He's a my, fun uh, man. And would love to get him on the podcast. Jim, I know you're listening. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I keep Dumb and Dumber saved on my DVR just for that scene where they eat the hot chili peppers. Oh, yeah. It, I just watch it over and over again. It makes me laugh from, like, the deepest part of my stomach. Ace Ventura is my favorite. Yeah. And G I have a deep love for Jim Carrey because I would do – that's something I would do to cheer my mom up, uh, do Ace Ventura impressions. That's why I got into – that's why that's why I value comedy so much, I think. In my household, Irish Catholic, not a lot of showing of emotions – Except for laughing, rage. being fun, <laughs> rage, <laughs> yeah. It just it's it was such a valuable tool in my house. Like uh, my sister had a boyfriend who was really funny, and my mom would be having a bad day. John would come over; he's hilarious. My mom would cheer up and like, "Thank God, thank God for laughing." And I'd do Ace Ventura impressions to cheer up. And then I found out Jim started doing his wacky voices and stuff because his mom was depressed. So I was like, oh, my God, I'm, I'm just like Jim Carrey. <laughs> just not as funny or successful. Paul, I quit. <laughs> Goodbye. Um, no, but, yeah, that's why I got into comedy. Dude, ADD or what? I, I can talk about comedy for hours, but that's why I love Jim Carrey. God damn it. You can edit that part out. <laughs> I'm leaving it in. I'm leaving it all in. Is there, uh, is there anything else you'd like to, uh, to share or talk about? Um, do you, I have a question for you mm -hmm. since this is the show has so many heavy topics. Do you ever get people pissed off? Listeners pissed off? Like, don't, don't talk about this. You triggered me or something like that. Yes. Yes. And my, the way I f handle that is, uh, first of all, I think the society has gotten a little too, indulgent in the trigger warning yeah. uh, culture. I understand that there are there when it's something that is unexpected, I understand a trigger warning. Uh -huh. You know, if you're going to show violent, graphic, sexual something right. on broadcast TV, that makes sense to me. Yeah, if, put a little things thing are before it. But, if all you're going to do is mention, you know, that, that somebody, you know, I don't know, had a father that drank a lot and the person right. is like, I would have really appreciated an alcoholism trigger warning. <laughs> yeah. It's like, you know, I think you're going to have to roll your sleeves up and yeah. uh, 
deal with this one on your own. So what, what, what I've done with the podcast, uh, the surveys tend to be the most triggering because they tend to be the most graphic and yeah. dark is I try to have them, uh, the heavier ones towards the end of the show okay. so that if people are like it's gotten too dark then uh yeah they can, idea. they can bail and every once in a while if something's really graphic and um and i read it on air every once in a while i will do a trigger warning but that's usually only if it's if it's very graphic and i mm-hmm. and sometimes if i don't i get shit from people but i'm okay with that because it's the nature of this show. It, none yeah. of it should be a surprise. Totally. I agree. Yeah. Um, I tweeted a clip from when you were on my podcast. Somebody mm-hmm. accused me on Twitter. It was like, you should have had a tr- trigger warning for this. Uh, like, I saw that. It's irresponsible. I, no, I saw that, and that pissed me off. That, uh, me that to me, is um, an example of somebody wanting the world to cater yeah. to them. And that was an unreasonable uh, request. I unfortunately engaged with her. Yes. <laughs> but the first in the tweet, my first the first words are suicidal thoughts are more common than you think. It's like right. I considered trigger warning is like, well, they're already seeing it's about suicide. Right. So so I told her, like, that was my reasoning. And then she was just like, I know this is hard for a cis white male to grasp. <laughs> oh, <laughs> SJWs. Yeah. So SJWs. Why am I even tweeting her? Because I thought about it for like the remainder of the day. Yes. And you you seem like a conscientious, uh, fairly progressive guy who's trying to do the right thing. And I think, uh, you know, the anger. Say it again. Yeah. You know, the venom should be saved for people whose intentions are not good i yeah. think there needs to be a distinction between people who maybe had a uh i don't know a moment of lack of awareness versus somebody trying to be hurtful yep and i'm having you can tell i'm depressed because i'm having trouble putting sentences together yeah. it feels like like every third word a one of that crane you know that crane game? Yeah. It comes <laughs> and it plucks every third word going through yeah. my brain and trying to talk when it's when it's doing that is not fun. <laughs> yes. So you're having a miserable time with me? Is it me? It's because what my hat? Want me to turn my hat forwards? Just kidding. Um I that she pissed me off because it almost kind of devalued the strength that depressed people have. Yes. Like I know what it's like to want to kill myself. I wouldn't be triggered by somebody talking about suicide. So I, I kind of want to be like, fuck you. Like, yeah. don't devalue how tough a sads are. <laughs> <laughs> I, what I usually just do is, you know, if it's an email, uh, I just delete it. Yeah. Because there's a part of me that wants to write back and shame them. And that's not, that's not right. Yeah. To shame them for shaming me. Right. You know, but in my mind, I envision that as being delicious and awesome and reality. It's, it never is. No. It's never enough. Hence, it's Facebook. Like pretty much just makes, when I engage with a hater, it makes me feel worse Yeah, <laughs> when, I, when I engage. And it's, I, I think it's a form of insanity thinking that if we can just belittle somebody enough, 
uh, they will change and we will feel satisfied and right. victorious. I've never seen it happen. Neither have I. Yeah. Don't be hating, everybody. Radoon, thanks so much for coming by and uh, give them the name of your podcast again. It's called I'm Sorry, Dad. Oh, I fucking love the name of it, too. <laughs> I'm sorry I forgot it. For no real reason. It's just a comedy it's podcast. Just a great, it's a great name. It's a great name. I, I had fun being being a guest on your podcast. Yeah, thanks People for doing it. People can follow you on social media at Rydoon, R-Y-D-O-O-N. You got it. <laughs> I don't know what that voice was, but... Uh, that was my bad impression of uh, the late, great Brody Stevens. Oh. That freaked me out a little That bit. freaked me out, too. Because I was like, oh, shit. Yes. Am I going to do that? Yes! Rydoon! Yes! <laughs> you got it. You shave... Oh, wait. I fucked it up. I scratch your back, you shave mine. Yes. What a great joke. <laughs> what a sweet man. What a sweet man. He will be missed. Uh, well, thank you uh, for having me on this podcast. I feel very cool for being here because I'm a big fan. Shout outs to all my fellow sad people out there. What's good? <laughs> thanks, buddy. Many, many thanks to uh, to Rye. As I mentioned uh, earlier in the podcast, today's episode is sponsored by Gary John Bishop's highly anticipated book, Stop Doing That Shit and Self-Sabotage and Demand Your Life Back. It's his highly anticipated follow-up to the New York Times and international bestseller, Unfuck Yourself. It is now available. You might have fucked up in the past, so what? Stop Doing That Shit reveals how you can break free of those deep-seated patterns to live the life you always knew you wanted but could never quite seem to have. Stop Doing That Shit is a no-holds-barred guide to breaking through your self-defeating cycles and finally getting what you want out of life. No more excuses. It's time to demand your life back, and Gary John Bishop is here to show you how. Stop Doing That Shit is on sale now in hardcover, ebook, and audio read by Gary John Bishop himself. Grab a copy today and visit GaryJohnBishop.com to learn more. Today's episode is also sponsored by the Calm app. We all know that stress is a mofo and uh, it's a part of life. And so let's face it and let's find a way to deal with it. Calm is the number one app to help you reduce your anxiety and stress and help you sleep better. More, more than 40 million people around the world have downloaded it. If you guys go to calm.com slash mental, make sure to include slash mental, you'll get 25% off a Calm premium subscription, which includes guided meditations on issues like anxiety, stress, and focus, including a brand new meditation each day, sleep stories, which are bedtime stories for adults, and they help you relax. Head to the fields of uh, southern France, the lavender fields uh, with Stephen Fry, or explore the moonlit jungles of Africa with Leona Lewis. Uh, Their adult bedtime stories are really uh, cool, really soothing, and I don't know anybody that couldn't use a little more soothing in their life. Um, they also have soothing music, if that's your thing, uh, if you're into that kind of thing. So right now, you guys, the listeners, get 25% off a Calm premium subscription at calm.com slash mental. That's C-A-L-M dot com slash mental. Get unlimited access to all of Calm's content today at calm.com slash mental. Get calm and stop stressing. Let's get to some surveys. This is a shame and secret survey filled out by... A guy who calls himself Crisco the Radio. The radio. I'm not sure what that means. He is 
He identifies as gay. He's in his 40s. He was raised in a totally chaotic environment. Uh, ever been the victim of sexual abuse? Some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts. Uh, I put an object in my older brother's bottom while he jumped to the bed. Uh, I was five or six and he was 12. When I was 11, I masturbated occasionally with a 15-year-old next-door neighbor. Uh, He's never been physically abused, uh, but he has been emotionally abused. He writes, both of my parents were narcissists. My dad was the traditional, arrogant, loud, vicious, Trump-styled narcissist. My mother was the passive-aggressive, martyr-styled narcissist. What my dad accomplished with bullying and aggression, she accomplished with tears and guilt. Both were all about appearances, and both projected their own personal failings and fears of inferiority inferiority outwardly and onto their children. My dad was consistently unfaithful to my mother, and I was the youngest of four. She raised me to hate him, although I don't think this was a conscious decision on her part. I was also the child she cried to, her confessor. Both parents are dead. Any positive experiences with these people? Most of my positive experiences are from before the age of 10, before I reached the age of becoming an individual and challenging them. My father was all about sports and work, and there were a few good memories of him gardening, coaching, and working before I reached 10. I have many more positives of my mother. She made every holiday special and magical, especially Christmas. Easter, Halloween, and Valentine's Day were all pretty magical, too. After 10, both fairly consistently but in different ways made it clear they didn't like who I wanted to be or who I was becoming. Darkest thoughts. I wish I had never been born or that I had died before the age of 10. I yearn for death but fear dying. I don't want it to be over until I am certain there is no hope for healing or until I am too old or in too poor health to continue on. I often wished my dad would physically abuse me as a child because it would be visible abuse that I could show and prove how he really was. I also used to think I would take one of his guns and kill him if he ever hit me. Darkest secrets. I shoved my dad in a chair and told him off when I was 34, popping him on his head with each point. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. Nothing really bizarre. I see myself as ugly and incapable of having really a really good man fall in love with me. So a really good-looking man falling in love with me and it lasting the rest of my life, that is hot to me. On the kinky side, a three-way with me in the middle has always been a fantasy. I have a foot fetish too. Is there anything you would like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I have never really had a problem saying anything to anyone as an adult. I wish I had asked for help as a child from professionals. And it's sad that that a child that that a parent wouldn't recognize that a child needed help, but I mean your parents couldn't even recognize that they needed professional help. Um, what if anything do you wish for? Healing, peace, happiness, fulfillment, good management of my ADHD. If I can make a life that works, I'd like to outlive all my siblings so my truths would outlive their lies, and so my healing might be passed on to my nieces and nephews. Have you shared these things with others? Yes, I'm in counseling and have friends I share these things with. That's huge, man. That is huge. Just keep on that path. Just keep doing it. Uh, How do you feel after writing these things down? Scared I will be identified. Relieved fear that I talk too much and don't say what needs to be said, but I am just putting out noise. This is so not that. This is a really profound survey. It's 
it's why I chose to, to read it. It's really heartfelt and vulnerable and heartbreaking, the, the neglect and the abuse that you experienced as a kid. Um, to not be seen by either parent and rejected, uh, that's, that's tough. That is tough. Anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? Get away from toxic people as fast and as far as you can. Don't be afraid to ask for help. Tough it out. See it through, and you will make it. And I, and I would clarify by toughing it out, meaning toughing it out by asking for help and continuing to let people help you, even if it comes in the form that you don't want it to come in. You know, if help always came in the form we wanted it to come in, chances are we wouldn't need help uh, because we would have done it already. It's why so often help is counterintuitive to what we think or feel or want. Thank you for that survey. This is an email I got uh, from a guy named Dimitri, and he writes, he writes, Hello! Exclamation point. My name is Dimitri. Radio is a great invention of mankind. Want to express his gratitude for what you do. We heard your broadcast via the internet. All your programs are worthy of the highest praise. You professionals of the business, real, experienced people, period. I always envied those who work with you. I think that that would either be my guests or mean DJ voice. I'm not sure who else there is. Uh, continuing, I, to you, have a small request. I'm so glad because a lot of times a request through somebody else, it can get lost in the translation. So thank you for doing I to you. My daughter will soon be holiday. Her name is Alexandra. I think we all enjoy taking the day off work to celebrate Alexandra. She attends school and is very fond of biology, history, and science. She loves animals, and home she has is a small dog. I don't know if that means that she transforms into a small dog once she gets home from biology, history, and science, or if she lives in a house shaped like a dog, but either way, it sounds really cozy. Also, she adores music. Her hobby is to collect information and souvenirs, television and radio of companies of the world and more. Please send us your free souvenirs, magnet, postcard, pen, icon, t-shirt, or something else for a gift. My gratitude to you will not have borders. I think every person needs borderless gratitude, especially in this time of international political trouble. For somebody to not put sanctions on gratitude is a really, really beautiful thing. And I don't know what the next fiscal year holds, for the restrictions around international gratitude, but my hope is that it will be traded freely and that you and I will get to meet Dimitri and perhaps have tea in your dog-shaped house. Give my best to your daughter. I will send her nothing. This is a shame and secret survey filled out by a woman who calls herself KT. She is... 
She identifies as basically straight, but I think I may be bi and haven't explored it fully. She's in her 20s, raised in a totally chaotic environment. Um, ever been the victim of sexual abuse? Uh, one event she reported, another event she didn't report, and then some stuff that she doesn't know if it counts. There are three distinct incidents. I was raped as a teen by a friend and never reported it, which sometimes I regret and sometimes I don't because there was no physical evidence and no struggle. I felt guilty because I didn't fight or flight. I froze. I felt like that somehow made him less responsible, even though I'd clearly said no and tried to push him off at one point. I know in my heart of hearts he knew what he was doing. The second time I don't remember, it's so hard to know what happened, but I did report it. The police dropped the case, but my college at least found him responsible. The first time, though, I don't know if it qualifies. My mother's longtime boyfriend was sexually inappropriate, in my opinion. He would be very touchy with her in front of me in a way my dad never was and no other boyfriend of hers ever has been. He also used to walk around naked, and it made me really, really uncomfortable. I used to get really worked up, and he would downplay it. That is abuse. A child telling you that your nudity makes them uncomfortable um, is, you know, I know that there are families where uh, nudity is a part of culture, and but a child knows in their body what they're feeling. If they are feeling something that has aggression behind it, and there is healthy nudity, and then there is aggressive nudity, and it sounds to me like this boyfriend of your mom's was aggressively uh, using nudity for some ulterior, ulterior motive. I used to get really worked up and he would downplay it, almost even making fun of me for caring. He was this washed up hippie type and it's like he thought I was, quote, square for not wanting to see him naked as a grade schooler. I don't remember much about my childhood. I think the trauma of my first rape decimated my memory, but I remember hating this boyfriend. I hated being around him. I hated visiting him. I hated when he visited us. I used to agonize about going on vacation with him and his kids, and I was so, so relieved when he and my mom broke up. I didn't even think that what he was doing might have been some sort of abuse until I listened to your podcast, and you had a woman whose parents and stepmom engaged in similar conduct around her. I always thought I just felt protective of my mom and hated him because he was dating her, but I never reacted uh, that way to any of her other boyfriends or to my dad's girlfriends and my stepmom. And my issues with him always felt sexually tinged somehow. I remember he tried to give me beer on New Year's Eve when I was like 12, and I freaked out, and he did the whole minimizing, downplaying thing. I also remember he showed us movies like Pulp Fiction when we were in grade school and did the same minimizing thing when I complained. I know I was a square to some extent, but it just felt so inappropriate. Uh, to be fair, he did this to his younger sons, too, the showing of inappropriate movies and offering beer. I also found topless pictures of my mom he'd taken, and she was super normal and caring and great about it, and he found out and tried to joke around with me about it. The same, like, why do you care? Sex is normal, etc., etc. I only have a few memories of him and his house and vacations we took, but the ones I do have really have started to trouble me as I've begun to turn them over. Uh, she's been emotionally, not sure if she's been emotionally abused, um, 
Oh, I guess some of them she qualifies as emotional abuse, other ones she's not sure. Emotionally abused by several different boyfriends. One engaged in sexual abuse, coerced sex, which I consider physical abuse, but I'm not sure if it is. Uh, he also would punch walls in front of me and once went to punch me, then veered at the last second. I tried to just let it go, but my dad used to hit my brother sometimes during arguments, and that really traumatized me as a child, and this was super triggering and upsetting. The other abusers were more typical gaslighting, insecure types. He was violent and jealous in a way no others were. Any positive experiences? Yes, of course, I think it's always like that, but I think I've been shockingly able to forgive and move on. I don't want any of them in my life anymore, and I'm glad they're gone, but I try not to harbor resentment or dwell in it. You know, my feeling about resentment, there are people that say, oh, you need to forgive that person. Uh, I, I, I'm not a believer in intellectually just forgiving somebody. I'm in a believer in processing the emotions, finding healthy ways to let out the anger and the pain and the sadness. And then if it comes, forgiveness is a feeling of that person not holding power over you anymore. That's been my experience. Darkest thoughts. Mostly it's my negative self-talk, like your rape wasn't that bad. Maybe you invited it. Maybe you're just too sensitive. Other people probably experience what you do and they're fine. I had this a lot with an eating disorder I developed while processing the rape, almost like a coping mechanism. Sometimes that negative voice extended to other people, like if someone would try to talk to me or intervene and get me help, I'd think, oh, of course they'd say that. They're fat. But it would be my skinny, size two friends. They weren't fat, and I knew it. And I just felt so much guilt for being so cruel. Also, I sometimes have sex dreams about male relatives. I have no interest in it, and it honestly haunts me darkest secrets. I think the deepest secret is the conduct with my mom's boyfriend described above. Some other secrets are that since I was raped, I like super violent porn and it's basically all I watch. I know how bad it is and I would be horrified if a straight man were watching this trash, but I can't get off without it. I think it's because all of my experiences with sexual abuse have been coerced alcohol facilitated as a child, etc. So I harbor a lot of guilt and shame about how I didn't have, quote, real violence inflicted on me, i.e. I wasn't literally held down, shoved, beaten, held at gunpoint, tied up, etc. I think I like seeing it acted out and imagining myself in that situation. I prefer videos with women with my race, hair color, body type, as if I almost deserve to have experienced that for how much my abuse has fucked me up and how much I agonize over and talk about it. It's really sad and fucked up to write out, but it's just how it is. It is not fucked up. It is you. The way you're reacting to it is not fucked up. What happened to you was fucked up, but the way that you are reacting to this is very human and very normal for experiencing what you did. I've read thousands of these surveys and you are not alone in what you are thinking and feeling and how this has affected you. You are not bad. You are not dirty. 
The final thing I hold on to a ton of shame uh, about is that a boyfriend who I consider an abuser was going through some deep depression and he once confessed gender dysphoria during an alcohol blackout and I tried to talk to him about it and he would never go there again, but I think this was not at the root of so, so many of his issues. I loved him and I really feel ashamed for abandoning him when he might be going through this, but he was so cruel to me and I couldn't do it anymore. I wish I could tell him this sometimes, but I think he hates me now. I went full scorched earth on him because I was so fed up with the emotional torment of being with him and being mistreated by him. Um, you know, it's a two-way street. If, 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 if we are to help or comfort somebody, they, you know, they need to have respect for us. You know, if somebody is pushing us away, being abusive towards us, that, in my opinion, our sense of duty to that person becomes a moot point. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. I hate that it's non-consensual stuff, but it is, described in a previous question. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I want my rapist to apologize. I want to ask my other sexual assailant what happened while I was blacked out. I would ask my mother's boyfriend, what the fuck is wrong with you? But he died from ALS, so there's a whole other source of shame that I hate and harbor such animosity for a fucking dead man who suffered deeply at the end of his life. His suffering has nothing to do with your suffering. It doesn't cancel it out. This is about the feelings inside of you. This is not about, you know, putting him on a scale of how much he suffered and how much suffering he dished out. What, if anything, do you wish for? Stability and peace. Uh, I just thought of the fucking sickest thing you could have said to him while he was at the end of his life is, <laughs> You're make, why are you making such a big deal about your ALS? Oh, that's so fucked up. Welcome to my brain. Have you shared these things with others? I share some, some I keep deeply secret. Most people are very supporting and caring, and mostly it invites emotional labor I'm not prepared for. People often come to me to confess things. How do you feel after writing these things down? Confused but relieved, and also validated, even though nobody has confirmed anything. It's like validating myself. That's awesome. Is there anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? You aren't alone. Cliché, but true and always, always bears repeating. Also, fuck the people who make you feel alone. They are the problem, not you. Thank you for that. Sending you some love. This is a shame and secret survey filled out by a man who... Um, Identifies as straight, with very rare exceptions. He's in his 40s, was raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment, was the victim of sexual abuse and never reported Reported it. Uh, first of all, I want to say thank you for doing this survey and sharing the responses on your podcast. The many answers were people chose, stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts. Then hearing what actually happened to them enabled me to accept that what happened to me was, in fact, sexual abuse. 
in spite of the fact that it pales in comparison to what many others have suffered. When I was very young, a man broke into our home. I woke up in the middle of the night with him asleep next to me and his hand inside my underwear on my genitals. That is horrifying. Horrifying. That That is like trauma compounded on to, on top of trauma. Uh, I was able to get untangled and hide until the situation was resolved. I don't believe anything else happened, but the shame associated with this event and my doubt as to whether anything else happened that I might have blocked out became an undercurrent that undermined my self-esteem and made me feel damaged and highly conflicted and confused about sexuality. Abuse is not, you know, I, I hate to be, to be graphic, but so often we think it's about how much did something physically hurt, you know, was was there, uh, you know, was an orifice uh, being torn or, you know, whatever. It, it has that, it, it's about us feeling dehumanized and you don't have to have something put in an orifice to feel dehumanized. You don't even have to be touched to feel dehumanized by somebody. Uh, For a long time, I denied that this was uh, important because it seems so minor compared to real sexual abuse. I'm over 40 now and just beginning to realize how much this event has affected me. One of the most damaging aspects of the event was that although I told the adults in my life what happened, no one brought charges against the man for that part of what happened. I don't believe... That to me is the worst part of it. I don't believe the police were even informed of it. I believe my parents made this decision out of their own shame about the event, the stigma associated with it, and their concerns about how telling the police about it might affect me as a young child. I was unfairly and inappropriately given the responsibility of choosing whether or not I wanted to tell the police about it as a very young kid. Of course I chose not to. I was scared, ashamed, and confused, and at five, far too young to be asked to make such a consequential decision. This was an unconscionable abdication of parental responsibility. (laughs) Hi, I'm Paul. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm trying out a new mouth. It's a new model. It's the 2019, and I'm still breaking it in. Uh, and further burdened me with the guilt and shame of being too cowardly to tell the police. The message I received was, was that I was not worthy of being protected in this way by my parents. As a parent now, I cannot imagine letting a very young child suffer such an event without doing everything in my power to ensure justice was done, not only for my own child, but for potential future victims. I wish I had been told what I would tell any young child now if anything like this ever happened to them. What happened to you was wrong, it is not your fault, and it had nothing to do with you. I know you feel scared and confused, but we need to be strong and brave together and tell the police what happened so that we can help make sure it doesn't happen to someone else. I will be right there with you, and I will make sure you are safe. I believe if I had heard these words and we had taken action, I would have grown up with a much healthier relationship to sexuality, better self-esteem, and a greater ability to trust. He's also been physically and emotionally abused. Uh, The only real physical abuse I really suffered in my home was that described above, although I was bullied at school pretty badly, and some of that was physical. 
Um, there was usual stuff between brothers, but nothing that rose to what I would call abuse. I suffered significant emotional abuse and neglect from my mother, who was severely mentally ill, probably with some combination of bipolar type 1, narcissism, and or schizophrenia. This combined with abandonment for a year by my father when I was very young, I believe resulted in me having borderline personality disorder, something I have only just come to accept that I have. The signs have all been obvious since my late teens, but depression, anxiety, alcohol abuse, and PTSD have all been consequences of the underlying condition that made it very hard to identify what the real issue was. My mother was simply emotionally not there. Very confusing and scary due to her mental issues, cold, stern, and unloving, and would leave me alone in the house when I was four or five. Once when I was 12, I visited her... She was out of our lives for the most part after I was seven or so and was sitting next to her on the couch. I put my hand behind her, not touching her, to lean over and look at a photo album. She accused me of getting fresh with her. Icky. My BPD led me to be attracted to narcissistic and otherwise damaged females as an adult, and I've always had an urge to rescue women to make up for the fact that I couldn't fix my mom. I've been married twice, first to an overt narcissist and the second time to a covert narcissist. In both cases, I was unable to see the manipulative behavior and emotional abuse. Narcissistic emotional abuse is often so subtle and insidious, they really know how to, quote, boil the frog. Um, I wasn't able to see it until it was far too late. I was blinded to it by the power of my attraction to these women and the intensity of my emotions of, quote, love, and I paid for it dearly in emotional and financial terms. The relationship between borderlines and narcissists is one I'm just starting to become aware of, and as I've been reading about it, it explains so much about the dynamic of my relationships and the type of women I've been attracted to. As of today, this has left me in a situation where I don't know if I will ever be able to trust another woman with my heart, and now I know I have my own issues due to BPT, BPD, which makes me hard to be around and can feel emotionally abusive and manipulative to others. I'm afraid I will never be able to love someone the way that I want to and afraid I will never be loved the way that I want to be. I so badly wanted to have an enduring and mostly happy marriage where both people learn and grow and support each other and love each other unconditionally. I'm afraid I will never be able to have that experience now, especially now that I understand how I am broken and can see how difficult it will be to manage. Thank you for having borderline guests on as well. There is so much stigma about this disorder. It is not our faults that we are the way we are, and so much of the work that is needed to help manage this disorder has to do with self-image that the stigma around it is very harmful to us. And I'm sure you have heard of uh, dialectical behavior therapy, but that's supposed to be a really great tool for people, anybody really, but especially people with uh, borderline personality disorder and uh, their loved ones. Any positive experiences with the abusers, the love bombing, intense sexual attraction, intense positive emotions, and that storybook romance feeling at the beginning of a borderline narcissistic relationship makes it very hard to square those amazing highs with the emotional abuse and suffering that followed them. My friend uh, Mickey says, the first six months of a relationship, you are talking to that person's representative. Uh, darkest thoughts. I occasionally think about killing my exes because of the pain they've caused me and my kid. I wouldn't ever do that 
do that, but I do very often wish they were dead and don't understand why they aren't the ones who die in a plane crash or get killed in a terrorist attack. Why can't I be that lucky? I often think of getting revenge via suicide, and the only thing that has stopped me from doing so is the impact I know it would have on my kid, and yes, I'm in therapy and getting treated for this. Darkest Secrets. Probably the worst thing I've done is borrowed two other people's sex toys without their knowledge or consent. I did clean them well, but I'm pretty ashamed of that. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. I fantasize often about finding a woman who really enjoys anal sex. I've had it a few times, but realized afterward that they were only doing it for me and not because they actually liked it, which makes it just gross for me. The whole turn-on for me is doing something dirty and somewhat taboo that they want to do and being part of that wish fulfillment for them. All of my most powerful fantasies are around a woman I love telling me her most secret fantasies and helping her fulfill them. Sharing this makes me feel sad because I don't believe I will be able to ever find someone to experience this kind of freedom and fulfillment with. You know, let go of the future tripping, man. Just take the right indicated action where, you know, in your daily life, And sometimes the universe has a way of pleasantly surprising us. Things that we thought would never be, would never get better or parts of us that would never grow. Um, Yeah. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I'd like to be able to tell my mother how she hurt me, but there is no point in telling her due to the severity of her illness and it seems like it would just be cruel. What, if anything, do you wish for a loving, truly committed relationship with a woman I'm very attracted to? Have you shared these things with others? Some of them I have, some of them I have not. I have a few very close friends who listen without judgment to things like this. I'm lucky to have them. How do you feel after writing these things down? Much better than I did when I sat down! Exclamation point. Anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? Yes. When you have borderline personality disorder and you have that overwhelming feeling at the start of a relationship, try to just enjoy it and keep your eyes open really wide for red flags. Whatever happens, do not marry that person unless and until you fully understand their psychological issues and their childhood and be on guard for any signs of narcissism. If you're probably sure you want to jump into the narcissist borderline dynamic in marriage, which is probably a bad idea no matter what, I would suggest doing couples and individual therapy for more than a year before getting married and working through the hardest issues. This seems like a ridiculous thing to ask of someone, but if you come clean about your BPD and they still want to marry you, it's in their own best interest to do it as well. Narcissists are really resistant to therapy, so it will be a gigantic red flag if they don't want to commit to it or if they don't really open up and work, start dodging subjects, or start lying in therapy. Thank you for that. Thank you so much for that. I really appreciate that. I love when I read a survey that um, just sheds new light on people's issues or how they're dealing with them. This is uh, the What Has Helped You survey filled out by a guy who calls himself Brian. His issues are depression and anxiety and what has helped you deal with them, allowing my body to rest when I'm depressed. After I'm done isolating, I'll clean my apartment, then socialize with friends. That sounds so simple, and 
yet it's so hard to do sometimes. You know, we'll shame ourselves. Oh, oh your fucking lazy ass is going to take a nap again. Depression is draining. It's like it makes us run a marathon that we didn't sign up for. What, if anything, have people said or done that has helped you with your issues? Finding people who relate to me helps a lot. Hearing someone I admire say, I'm depressed, helps. It makes me feel less alone, and I'm finally able to identify with someone. Thank you for that, man. Thank you for that. And then finally, I want to read another What Has Helped You survey. And this is filled out by a woman who calls herself, Sometimes I Don't Want to Die. She identifies as bisexual and in her 20s. Her issues are depression and anxiety, uh, codependence, and uh, trauma from immigration when she was younger. And I'm just going to read part of this. Um, Sometimes I need the kind of, uh, what has helped you deal with them? Sometimes I need the kind of response from someone which is actual, uh, a physical solution to a problem. Uh, For example, I started cutting myself with hair trimming scissors. I told my husband about it twice. The first time he just expressed concern and said, I guess you got to do what you got to do, which is nice that it's destigmatizing self-harm, but it didn't really help me. The second time he figured out that I wanted his help and he immediately offered to take away all my sharp objects for the time being. That made me feel safe and protected. My husband is amazing, and he really took the effort to learn how to talk to a depressed person. I saw on social media once that a depressed person's boyfriend would text them to ask, how is your brain doing? I love that, because it really is like a separate entity, the mental illness. I showed my husband and told him it'd be nice if he could ask me that, because it feels less vulnerable than questions like, how are you feeling, or are you okay? So he would ask me that, and I could just tell him that I feel like shit and I want to die. He knew that he didn't have to say anything or give me advice, and just listening is good enough. Sometimes, though, I want a different kind of response, and I would tell him to be sad with me, or cuddle me, or pat my head and tell me, poor baby. I'll ask for reassurance a lot, like, am I a good person? Is it okay to be sad? It's okay to not go to work, question mark, that kind of stuff, and he'd tell me it's okay. I think I'm making it easier for him to comfort me by giving him yes or no questions instead of open-ended questions like, I'm sad, you need to cheer me up. Uh, what have people said or done that has, has helped you with your issues? I, uh, other than my previous answer, there are two things I can think of. One time, I finally got out of bed after a depressed week and decided I should cook something. Cooking is one of my biggest hobbies, uh, but I neglected it when I was too depressed. So I started chopping vegetables, and my husband saw me, and he just had the biggest grin on his face and came up to hug me. He said, you're cooking. This is amazing. It makes me feel like things are getting normal again. It was the first sign for me that I was, in fact, getting better. So please, everyone, appreciate the small steps that a depressed person takes to get normal. The other thing that really helps me is kink. When I'm depressed, sad, but feel numb and can't cry, my husband can tell that I needed a good spanking. So he would tell me to go to the bedroom and he would spank me. It gives me a great opportunity to cry like a baby, and it feels better than crying alone because I feel connected to my husband like he is helping me be sad. 
Funny thing is, I don't crave spankings nearly as much when I'm not depressed. I learned so much. I learned so much. And what what a great note to end the podcast on. Just some good old-fashioned spanking. Consensual spanking. And uh, I hope you liked today's episode. I hope you liked the surveys. I hope you got something out of it. I know I did. So if you didn't, fuck you. It's all about me. I can't adopt Ron. I can't. I want to. And I can't believe that they've both been loose this whole time. That I've been uh, doing the pre- and post-interview recording. And I thought for sure this was just going to be a nightmare. And it's one of the reasons I don't want to adopt Ron is because if I I record at my house and just sometimes it's hard to get Gracie when she's the only one here to, to quiet down so I can record. And the thought of the t- dumb and dumber making a one or hour and a half Recording into a three-hour process just seems so daunting. Uh, I'm torn. I'm torn. Anyway, uh, that's what I want you to take out of this today's episode is that I'm torn. Anyway, I, I, I hope after hearing this, uh, you know that you're not alone because you are not. And uh, help is always out there if we're willing to get out of our comfort zone and ask for it and be open to it coming in a form that maybe we're not crazy about. And uh, thanks for listening. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautiful. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some.